out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, performer. It is going to be the one and only Maggie K. DeMond. He was in a band called Scarlet Fantastic and has also been in various other musical combos throughout the decades. And this is the interview, so you're going to find out much, much more. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Maggie, it's over to you. I remember a kiddie party that I had. Uh, we were all like throwing ourselves around to Jean Genie. I was, I was totally nuts about Bowie, Roxy, Gary, T-Rex. Yeah, it was all the glammy stuff. But having said that, there was also Gino Washington, Ram Jam Band. And then I suppose it had been like, um, yeah, there was Dusty, there was Sandy, Sandy Shaw. Um, my mum always used to listen to an amazing mixture of stuff. You know, she, she would listen to Percy Sledge, Edith Piaf, Iron Butterfly. Oh, my goodness. Talk about God. psychedelic. Sort of, yeah. So were your parents quite uh, bohemian then? No, not particularly. They were just a bit bonkers, I think. My dad, of course, loved um, Frank Sinatra, you know, um, and who else? Uh, yeah, yeah, you had like kind of, was it, um, who was it? It wasn't Chuck Berry's dancing party. It was someone else. I can't remember. It was like, oh, yeah, and there's Let's Twist again. Oh, like chubby. we did last summer, all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. classic stuff. Yeah, because when I was growing up, my parents, I think they got married. We were sort of from the countryside and very working class. So I think when they got married, they kind of sold everything to just get a place together. Because I don't think people in that time ever ever borrowed money or had any debt so they would sort of do this kind of thing of um yes just like get rid of everything get a house have a family and then a record player appeared in the early 70s and that was when you know we started you know my brother I was very influenced by my brother who was seven years older than me and he had lots of kind of prog rock basically that was his thing so I got into prog but did you have any kind of brothers and sisters who had a, a influence on your musical moments um I had um a younger brother, bless him, who actually became quite a great, a brilliant photographer and ended up doing all of the early Duran Duran photos, which funnily enough, or he just snapped everything that moved in Birmingham at the time that was on the scene. And in fact, Duran Duran recently, for their 40th anniversary, they used all of his pictures on their merchandise. So it's his pictures that are on the mugs and the jigsaw puzzle and the T-shirts. But back to your question regarding... Um, brother influencing me. And I think it was probably me influencing him. Um, but, you, you know, you, you talked about that when sort of record... I, when record players appeared, I had one of those... It was red and cream, and it had a... Was it a dance set? I can't remember. Any. Yes. It had the lid lifted up. And actually, I do remember things like Free the Pain, Band of Gold, and I remember Hot Legs, Neanderthal Man. I like that. <laughs> I actually got, um, yeah, and what? And I actually did get into, a bit later, I got into Genesis and nice. Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, um, oh, as well as Roxy Music. Yeah, I just went through all kinds of stuff, actually. My, my background is really eclectic. It really is. And living yeah. in Birmingham as well, growing up in Birmingham, you know, you had such a mixture of stuff. And by the time we got into the 80s, everyone sort of hung out with everyone. You've got, you know, you've got bands like UB40, you've got still pulse so the reggae thing was 
quite big and, and strong but then you've got sort of like new romantics you know you've got Duran Duran you've you'd, you'd had Dexys which are kind of Midlands and then of course you've got the Scar stuff you know and then you've got indie stuff from before that the au pairs um and you know the my band the bands I was in and there was it was a really healthy music scene there was a lot going on but I mean prior to that as a kid before getting into bands myself, um, I, I I just went through so many phases. But still to this day, David Bowie is just one of my absolute heroes. Still, I even have dreams about him where he gives me these messages. Don't tell me I'm mad, but <laughs> can I just can I just tell you this one yes. dream? That it, it that would be great. Me. I love David Bowie, so this is all fun. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a strange thing, um, but I don't know, it's a few, I don't know, about four years ago, and David was in my dream, and he handed me three segments of a tangerine, and they were warm, and um, I held them in my hand, and he'd been holding them in his hand, that's why they were warm, and then we went to this meeting, some kind of meeting, you know, it wasn't an AA meeting, it was some kind of meeting, but the message in the meeting was, and it was sort of agreed that, anyway, the message was, um, if you let go, you'll find your higher purpose through your higher self. And I woke up and it was like, wow, there's a message from David Bowie. And that was after he died. <laughs> so that, that plays in my mind quite often, as I say. I, I don't quite know what the three warm segments of a tangerine mean but um it's, it's a pretty great it's a great message isn't it if you just let go um you know you find your higher purpose through your higher self and the weird thing was as well um not long after that i was in india uh visiting a friend who lived in goa and i was with another friend and we were walking along and i was telling her about this dream and she went oh my god look look um look at that wall over there <laughs> the wall and sort of written on the wall it said um just let go and then it said never-ending peace and love <laughs> i don't know just uh well, I, I must admit, that 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 would be with me forever that was um that's one hell of a dream that's amazing i know actually. i know i need if anyone's got any ideas about what the three segments three, of the three tangerine are that are yeah. warm i'd be very curious to know and warm as well god you you really did you wake up and just write all that down because if i don't it just goes or did you stay awake after that dream but that that one's that one stayed with me I'm, i dream massively every night and, and my dream it's like i have a movie every night and i don't remember everything quite often when i wake up um it's there but then it goes very quickly but but in with some in some instances like for example the dream I just told you about the um you know the, the tangerine segments um that that stayed with me and I remembered that and, yeah. and it, I was thinking about that today actually it's weird isn't it it's just one of these things it kind of inspires me as well well I know you know I must admit you great know, message I mean. it's a great I, I'm not saying it's from David I mean I'm not I'm not I'm not sort of <laughs> You know, but I, it, how, however it came about, it's it's just a great message, isn't it? It's it's a good. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely one to um stay with, stay for with you forever, really. So um yeah. So that's yeah, yeah that's a that's an amazing story, actually. God, because I, yeah. I do, I've got a bit of an obsession with David Bowie, so um, but I won't go on about that quite yet because that would be. Too oh, you funny. can. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so look, Birmingham. So last year, oh. no, this year, 
the Nightingales, Robert Lloyd, had this film act called King Rocker, and it sort of starts in Birmingham at the Ball Ring. So there's Stuart Lee talking about the Ball Ring and the sort of... uh, God. I need to watch it. Yes, and, need- and so there's a lot about Birmingham and this club that they all went to, and there was members of Duran Duran and the guy from the Lilac Times who, oh, Stephen Duffy as well was there. Stephen Duffy, yeah, I know Stephen, yeah, yeah. I, so, I, I know most of them from Birmingham, actually, because it was just, we were all just kind of there in it together, you know, we were just sort of young kids growing up and, you know, getting into music and all of that, and um yeah, in fact, my very first band before Swansway, we, we were called Playthings and um, we were on a TV show in Birmingham called Look Here that was presented by Toya. And then we did a few dates supporting Duran Duran as well. That was uh, when, when they first, you know, when they released Planet Earth and it hit the charts. My God, so, so you really did sort of get to see the boys, Roger, Andy, Simon. Yeah. I can't remember the rest, actually. Nick? <laughs> uh, well, there were the three Taylors, weren't there? There's Andy Taylor, Roger Taylor, and who was the other one? John Taylor. John Taylor, the bass player. Simon. Yes. Yeah. So with because because of that stage, I remember, you know, the film, you know, with Robert Lloyd in Talk About the Nightingales, which is a great, great film if you, if you get a chance to see it for many reasons. I must say, everyone's told me to watch it. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, it's a really lovely kind of story about a person's creative kind of journey and their ups and downs. Mm. My God, the ups and downs. Mm. But then, you know, because, so your first band before you got into um, Swansway. So how did, what was the kind of progression from that first band to Swansway then? Oh my. Uh, okay, well, um, the, the Playthings was myself and Rick, and we had also a drummer and a bass player, and we went through a few different kind of lineups, I think, maybe, maybe only one or two. Um, and it was kind of um, sort of I suppose, kind of rocky, um, indie, sort of bit glammy, kind of. I remember I had a Wasp synthesizer, which I loved, mm-hmm. and Rick played guitar. He did most of the singing. I did some singing too. We kind of just knocked that on the head. We, we met this really interesting guy called Robert Shaw, um, and he'd been in a band. He was really totally into Joy Division, and he'd been in a band, I think, Forgive me if I'm wrong, I can't quite remember the name. It might have been The Last Gang or something, but I don't know. They were kind of cool um, from, from Wolverhampton. Anyway, we met Rob and myself and Rick and Rob, we decided we all liked each other and we wanted to work together, but we weren't quite sure what we wanted to do or how we wanted to do it. But then we decided a really good thing to do would be if we all played instruments that we didn't really know how to play. Mm. Uh, uh, well kind of or had never played before for example Rick went on to double bass and it's quite a big blooming thing to have in your flat when it's a very small flat but anyway that's quite that's that's the um, ukulele I can see but a double that's that's also a big investment isn't it well I can't you know what we probably had got it quite cheaply from somewhere but anyway um so he played double bass and it was decided I would play drums. Um, not, you know, I'd never played drums in my life before. So 
But actually, it turned out I wasn't too bad on the drums. I, I just basically did my own little kit thing, a bit more like the Stray Cats kind of setup. I had a, a snare and a hi-hat and yes. um, a tom-tom. And then Rob just sang. So originally, initially, we were just double bass and, um, you know, me on drums and Rob singing. A bit later, he did start to play. Rob did start to play a little bit of guitar. And I did backing vocals and I did some piano, you know, um, keyboards um but what we kind of we just we we were listening to a lot of french movie soundtracks and i'd you know from an early age i sort of had little jobs in france and i got french relatives and everything so i say my mother was a great edith pf fan so um i'd i'd list i'd had a summer job in the Alps in France, and I've been listening to a lot of pop music by people like Joe Dassin. And um, yeah, so we were just, and we, we did love the music to Last Tango in Paris, which right. was by Gato Barbieri, beautiful soundtrack. Um, and then we were sort of into a lot of movies. I mean, that was kind of re re really our influences. We kind of got labelled in with the new jazz. You know, you've got bands like Sade and Blue Rondo, Ala Turk and various other bands, but we were kind of were just doing our own thing, really. We weren't kind of like anyone else. Um, and it just so happened that um, mine and Rick's next-door neighbour had the flat next door with Simon Woods, who managed UB40 at the time. So it was a very small scene in Birmingham. Everyone kind of knew everyone. And, and Simon had heard us rehearsing, and because we used to rehearse in, in mine and Rick's bedroom, actually, just double bass drums and the three of us. It's crazy. And um, so, so we said to Simon, do you want to come and listen to us rehearsing? And he came in and um, we had written Soul Train at that time. That, that, and he heard that and he just really, really liked it. And he said he wanted to manage us. So, um, yeah. And of course, because he, I think he'd finished managing UB40 at that time, but obviously because he got some good contacts. Um, yes. You know, I think it was Sony Publishing at the time. But they, were they called Sony? No, they were called CBS at the time. CBS, CBS Songs. Yes. They heard a demo that we'd done with, with several songs on. God, this is such a long time ago. This is uh, 1982. Oh, my goodness. Long time ago. Oh, yes. Nearly 40 years ago. Oh, my God. Anyway, um, yeah, so they heard this song, this demo, and um, they signed a pub we signed a publishing deal with them. And I um, can't remember how it came around. I mean, but we did a Radio 1 session, as you did back in those days, and then we got asked if we would if the tube could come and film us I think that's what kind of kicked it off really so the tube came down to Birmingham and um there was a club called the Review Bar that was a, a strip club on the, the uh, Soho Road and uh so we the tube film crew came and filmed us uh playing Soul Train and then of course it went on the tube and I think you know that created some record company interest Yes. Oh, prior to that, actually, we'd gone to, yeah, with, with our publishing deal, we'd gone down to um, Jacob's Studios in Surrey, which at that time it was um, a residential studio. It was a swimming pool, and we all thought this was rather fabulous because we were all very young. And uh, But we had we were, we were we considered ourselves radical, and we decided, you know, everything we did had to be sort of completely radical. So we decided we'd go and record our first song, which was called... 
uh, theme from the balcony and it, Simon Woods put it out on his label, Exit International. And uh, we decided we were going to record it with absolutely no EQ. That was right. it. So, <laughs> no EQ. So, much to the amusement of the engineer at the time. But actually, yeah, we recorded it and um, yeah, it was released as a single. Um, my brother shot the cover. We used a friend of ours. We dressed him up in a sailor outfit and sat him under a cherry tree. Very oh, sort of Jean Renee. And that's uh, very cool, actually. Because during that that eighties period, because you mentioned, because it was um, there was Char- Yeah, you mentioned Chardé, and there was also another band called Working Week. You might have come a bit later, oh, yes, yes, but there was a yes. sort of there was the, and there was the, the bands like the Latin Quarter. So were you sort of picking up on that kind of? kind of rather chic sound because there was the sort you know, of you know we were we were just kind of really did our own thing we were quite um up our own bums a bit sometimes but <laughs> at the same time we really weren't we weren't pretentious at all we, we would laugh a lot we daft as anything I mean I remember one time oh my goodness um Mike do you remember Mike Mansfield from Cue the Music he did this. Oh, um, yes, he did this documentary on us, um, which included filming us at the Astoria Charing Cross, but also filming us. It was all very camp. Uh, he wanted to have coffins exploding and stuff, and we said that's not quite our kind of thing, really. But he recorded us, us at this film, just at this um, disused. Let's uh, call it a mental institution in Virginia Water. Um, and it was just so funny. I remember one time me and Rob, we were, we were being interviewed and we just couldn't stop giggling all the way through. And in the end, they, did, they couldn't use our interview. They had to, uh, they interviewed Rick because he was far more uh, sort of sombre and coherent. Because all, all me and Rob could think of was this little mouse that was running across the floor. <laughs> but anyway, there's this really, there is a funny, um, there's a funny... It used to be available on video. I'm sure it's around somewhere. It's called History and Image. And it was like an hour-long documentary. Um, I think there was a series, but it was a mixture of us playing at the Astoria Charing Cross and then being filmed. Um, yeah, and it was it was quite funny. But, you know, as, as well as like having a right old laugh, we would, we would come out with some of these preposterous statements. I remember once in the Face magazine, we said, what was it we said? We said... Um, we said, we're pissing in a desert while everyone else is farting in the vacuum. <laughs> I think we thought we were very clever to come up with that. That's not bad. <laughs> it's good. It's good. So you Quite kind good, of, really. you were veering towards the kind of Blitz kids, so that kind of whole sort of cool London scene as well. Well, yeah, do you know what? Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was really interesting, you know, much later on, and I've met quite a lot of people, you know, from the 80s and especially now later, funnily enough, um, you know, quite good friends with Steve from Spanner Ballet. And then, um, you know, one of the guys from ABC as well. And, you know, being friend, becoming friends with them much later in life and sort of hearing, you know, what they thought of us as musicians way back then. Yes. You know, it's, it's, we had we had quite a lot of kudos I think I think people seem to quite like us um but we weren't particularly aware of that at the time we, we just kind of lived in our own little bubble really and we were from Birmingham you know like the, the whole blitzing was going on 
in London. Um, whereas we, you know, we were sort of still living in Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, so, so we had our own thing going on. The, the Rum Runner Club was our kind of thing. But actually, yes, we were kind of, we did, we just kind of did our own thing, really. Well, I think with most bands, when I spoke to them now, after all these years, wished in a way, there's a few wishes some people have, just a couple, like a list. But, um, you know, it's like, I wish, I wish I'd been a bit friendlier to other bands or I wish I'd, but often yeah. it's a shyness and a sort of insecurity. And then that comes over as a sort of off, you know, sort of being offish and also a bit arrogant. But it was like, no, I just could I was just kind of really just, I just was kind of too scared to talk to anybody. But, they, you know, people often read it. But now, you know, you're a bit old, one gets older and sometimes just goes, hello. And it's oh, like, gotcha, oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, you meet people, you come across people and then you kind of, you chat about the past and then you forget about the past and you just talk about the present. Yes, and just I know, like, you know, it's not, you know, it, like absolutely, sort of, but... But that kind of mm. first introduction of just saying hello and just kind of being friendly is, is almost like, oh my God, I can't bear it. I can't, you know, they'll just ignore me. They hate me. They probably, I'll just assume they hate me. I'll just go over here. And then they think, God, that person's so offish. And it's like, no, just couldn't, you know, couldn't. Just you know, it, it's, it's, there is that, it is, I know what you're saying, absolutely. And I think we were all so young. And, you know, when you were doing things like the tube or Top of the Pops, you know, you, you just, you, you sort of, your paths crossed, but there was this, I think we all had a certain kind of aloofness. And I think you're probably right. It's probably more of a sort of shyness thing, really, yes, than anything. Yes. I, I mean, well, uh, I'm get, just trying to, yeah. So when you came to do the album, Swan's Way, which is the Fugitive Kind, yeah. this was with the, the famous producer, didn't you? You had Mike Thorne, who'd done a no, Soft Cell, hadn't he? And he was kind of the, the hot producer of the time. Yeah, bless him, Mike. Do you know what? I was, I was with Mike more recently, actually, in 2014. I went and stayed with him in New York, and he's still got a studio down in Greenwich Village. He's got so many great stories to tell, because, I mean, he worked with Marianne Faithful as well, you know. So, so many people. Yeah, I mean, we were sent over to work with Mike in New York, which was an absolute gas. It was absolutely amazing. We'd also been working in the UK with um, John Walters. Now, John used to be in landscape. Do you remember Einstein and Go-Go? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, so John was in that. So we did quite a, a lot of recording with him. But also, yeah, the record company sent us over because Mike was kind of, you know, the one of the producers of the time. He'd done Soft Cell, Bronsky Beats, Carmel. Um, oh, my God. And we just had the best time in New York. We said, so we were being sent over to New York and, you know, we had the record company was just paying for everything, which is amazing. We were kids. We'd never been to New York. We were you know, it was our dream come true to come to New York. You know, we looked, you know, all our clothes were from the rag market in Birmingham. And then our friends, Jane and Patty from Carn and Bell made our clothes as well. And, you know, if you look too closely, you would have seen that my shoes were kind of got my black pointed shoes have got gaffer tape on the bottom holding them together but you know we arrived in New York and and looking exotic and fab and we'd said we wanted to stay at the Chelsea Hotel so <laughs> yeah it was amazing so it was kind of dreams coming true and we were you know we were picked up at the airport in a limo uh, with a drinks cabinet in it I mean this is just like kids from Birmingham like woohoo we had the best time and then we were given um invites you know to all of the clubs of the time like 
um, area and limelight and the Pyramid Club and everything. And, you know, like Grace Jones was hanging around. She was going out, I think, with Dolph Lundgren at the time. And it was just such a happening scene. And it's just brilliant. And we were just there and it was just all happening. And, um, yeah, we went over a couple of times, actually, and we recorded at um electric lady studios the ones that jimmy hendrix Hendrix. oh my god so you went from kind of like small band in birmingham to suddenly electric lady land with jimmy did the hendrix with mike thorne who'd done soft cell and just had that so that must have not to completely lose the plot on the that was just great it was just there we were always you know and like i remember our manager had always said, or someone had always said, just don't get the F train, don't get the F train, it's really dangerous. But like, we didn't give a shit, we we're just kind of like, you know. So, and I think also because we kind of looked kind of very quirky, no one really bothered us, we were absolutely fine. And this is in New York when it, you know, it wasn't as safe as it is today. I mean, you know, New York. So anyway, yeah, we got the F train out to Coney Island and it was amazing. And, and that movie, The Warriors, hadn't been out. Oh, God, yes, I remember that. Warriors, you know, and all the graffiti for Warriors are still on the walls and stuff at Coney Island. So, um, oh, God, it was amazing. And it was just a thing of, like, dreams coming true. You know, you'd, all the movies we'd seen and loved, all those buildings, you know, the Chrysler building and everything, and um, hanging out in places you shouldn't hang out in and... 42nd Street. So well had you also gone to places like CBGB's and the Mud Club and Max's Kansas City? Was that Did that come on your radar when you were in New York? Well, I'm not sure if CBGB's was still open when we were there. I don't know what year it closed down. Or, But no, the, I didn't go there, there then. We went, as I said, it was mainly it was like area, limelight, and Pyramid Club were the, were the ones that we were going to. Blimey. Uh, God, yeah. it, did, it did make Birmingham probably look a bit sort of like <laughs> like a different world. Though I suppose you'd have still... It, at least well, it was do you know, Birmingham, there was something fabulous about Birmingham. We just used to trot around all the nightclubs. There were like loads of clubs and everything, and a great bunch of people. I mean, one of my close friends still is Martin Degville from Sig Sig Sputnik, and he now lives just up the coast from me. He's at St Leonard's in Hastings, and we were mates when we were teenagers in Birmingham, and he's one of the most creative people you could ever meet, you know, and Boy George has always said that, um, you know, Martin is, is one of his biggest influences ever. They shared a flat together. And when I first met Martin, um, he, him and George were doing a stall in Ragmarket, uh, not Ragmarket, in Oasis Market in Birmingham. No, there was a lot going on. It was, it was a really, it was a really vibey scene. And, you know, New York was cool. Yes. Uh, New York was but great. It was, it I mean, also, um, New York in that period was still recovering. I don't know if it was recovering, but it still had that massive kind of problem with heroin, hadn't it, from the 70s, which had wiped out most of those kind of New York dolls and every, you know, most people were quite like a junkie, really, from that punk scene. So things were kind of messy until, actually, I think until they, yes, until they basically passed away and died. Because, you know, there was a lot of casualties during New York in in that sort of punk period. Absolutely. um, so it was, Absolutely. and also in the 70s, I think New York was quite bankrupt. So there was a lot of kind of, that's why it was so cheap because no one wanted to live there, yeah. which is kind of hard to believe, I guess, because at the time I have done quite a lot of interviews with people and there's a guy who did the book on the Mud Club and he, you know, he sort of bought a place, yeah. which was so cheap. Wow. wow, that was, you know, but no one wanted to live there. That's why you had all these artists come in and the birth of kind of, you know, punk rap and, and disco yeah. was all there because it was like, yeah. well, 
There you go. There you go. Yeah, so, there's Studio 54 as well, wasn't there? Yes. Oh, God, absolutely. And Dancer Terry. Um, yeah. 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 Gosh. So what's your memory of recording your the, the album, by the way, you know, with Mike? Did that sort of come, did, was that quite a smooth process? Yeah, actually, we, we, um, we did the sort of pre-production work um, at his place in Greenwich Village. Um, and because he he programmed quite a bit of stuff, he used a Lindrum, and he had a, I think, and I think he still has it today actually, a Synclavia. Um, but then we used we used a four piece horn section as well, the Uptown Horns. Uh, they came in played I mean we've got the songs already written I'm trying to think how many songs we actually recorded with him it's like three or four um we'd already written them and obviously he'd heard the demos and um yeah he because he 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 did use the lindrum that was that sort of that sound of the time yeah and um so we just did our you know Rick played bass, Rob sang, I sang, I played some keyboards. Um, and then we had the horns as well. So that was, yeah, I mean, I think we went over twice. There were two different times that we went over. And uh, each time it was great. It was just brilliant. Um, met some really, met some really great people working in the studio who much later, well, a couple of years later, when myself and Rick were in Scarlet Fantastic, we went back and visited them and happened to um, come across Brian Ferry recording there with Nile <laughs> Rogers. And so God. we ended up sitting in on a, with Nile Rogers on a session, which is kind of interesting. But that was later. That was when we were in Scarlet Fantastic after Swansway. But anyway, back to Swansway. Um, yeah, with Mike Thorne. Um, yeah, just um, trying to think if anything particularly sticks out. No, just just we just recorded. We just got on with it and made music. So who was um, the you know? Because at that time, you know, because the eighties in a very simplistic way, but there were the gatekeepers. You know, we had you know like obviously you know the mainstream press, and we had you know daytime radio one, but we also had you know John the John Peel show, didn't we? Which was kind of yeah. fantastic for new bands, and there was like three weekly music papers like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, Record Mirror as well. Yeah. And yeah. and then you know every city every city had a like alternative venue, didn't they? So um, yes. yeah, so you could get you know played a lot. So and there was huge amounts of scenes. Uh, the thing about the eighties and probably other decades, but obviously, you know, you you had the new romantics, but you had the goth you know scene. You had new Paisley. You had the birth of indie pop, the post punk scene, psychobilly. Yeah. So where were you kind of sitting? Where who was champ, championing the band when you sort of you know came out with the album? Where 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 do you think we fitted in? Yeah, I don't where think you, we fit, yeah, because Sade had you know you couldn't you know remember any of the face and you always had Sade on the phone. It probably wasn't quite like that, but memory serves me. You know, it's like she was always on the cover of those kind of glossy magazines like, yeah. and also the face. And I just wondered which you know you know publications kind of were fascinated with your band. Oh, it's interesting. Oh, you should say that. Okay, I I don't think we um you you couldn't really kind of bag us. You couldn't give us a label. And sometimes 
sometimes that's like a problem as far as record companies are concerned because they always want to kind of label and give everything a genre um in terms of magazines and papers we had a lot of support from melody maker actually um we we had a front cover of melody maker if, if i'm not mistaken i seem to think we did a swan's way yep um i think we did because the the album cover is very cool isn't it everyone looks very sort of chic debonair suited and booted and sort of mysterious um yeah that was a, a film image actually we interestingly um we had seen we the i the particular idea of that cover was influenced by i think it was a 1960s or 70s italian um <coughs> excuse me i think it was a movie soundtrack album and i don't know which one it was but um the idea of it came from that and how we did it we shot simon fowler was a great photographer at the time and we used to like working with him he shot a picture of me um my face and back in those days when all of the sort of digital photography and you know it didn't exist you weren't able to do things you know like you can do today so things had to be done sort of more literally so he shot a picture of my face and blew it up absolutely huge so the picture of my face took up nearly the whole of a wall and then the guys Rick and Rob had their photograph taken and, and it was a black and white photo of my face and Rick and Rob had their photo taken. Um, yeah, looking pretty dapper in the suits and stuff with, with the, the sort of 50s style hairdos. Um, they had their pictures taken absolutely right next to the big blow up. Right. My face. So so, yeah, you know, so that, that was what you see um, on the album cover is actually, it's kind of how we did it. You know, these days, you just, with everything would be done digitally. So also we decided a, a rather interesting thing to do, it's a sort of tactile thing as well, was, was we, we did, we had the cover, um, it was sort of this brown, I don't know what the material was, but kind of rough looking, and then it had this strip, across which is the photograph right um yeah and uh yeah it was just something artistically that we, we liked we really to us image was important and we did spend a lot of time you know thinking about how we presented ourselves and yeah. it wasn't just for the sake of what we looked like it was to kind of represent the music that we did and what we were saying and um God, it does make it's a mysterious looking cover, isn't it? Those guys looking at you in a wistful way. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, which was kind of, I, get, I just remember there was also those early, because I was a very, you know, I loved indie pop from that period. Well, I loved uh -huh. anything from John Peel, but there was people like Everything But The Girl who was kind of also yeah. tapping into a certain jazz yeah kind of vibe yeah. as well so there was yeah 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 I, I i think i mean we didn't we didn't purposely tap into sort of jazz vibe it's just that we you know i suppose we've been listening to a lot of film music and um some of the instruments that we were using yeah would, would be considered jazzy and rob had this sort of croony voice so i guess it kind of you know and you've got as as you said just carmel and well, I said Carmel and you said Sade and, you know, there were all these other bands as well. And I kind of, I guess it was that sort of, yeah. sort of 
kind of new jazz thing, although we didn't think of ourselves as being like that. But I guess loosely we could have been bagged yeah. like that. Because then, because in, well, I suppose for me, one of the main things that happened in the 80s was the kind of, the Smiths came along in 83 and suddenly there was kind of like, I think there was just that feeling of like, okay, there's a bit of a scene now. And they lasted five years. So there was like between 83 to 87, you know, there was suddenly all these bands like the Triffids and the Go-Betweens and the Wolfhounds and all that kind of you know that kind of scene and I suppose you know I was just at that age where I was particularly obsessed with it so it all seems much bigger than it probably is but when but then when when the album comes out which is kind of 84 85 the band Mm -hmm. splits up which is like you know it's not even a second album this is what happens (laughs) what happens in 85 oh goodness do you know I mean I think we'd actually been together since about 82 Right. So, you know, and, and when you were young, you know, you kind of, you're fast moving, you know, time, time takes on a different kind of feel as you get older. And, you know, as you're older, I think you probably spend longer on things possibly. I'm not sure. But um, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, we'd had, we'd done off, we'd done that album. And I think we'd kind of, done everything and concluded everything that we really wanted to do within that format and so I think Rob was ready to go off and do something different I think myself and Rick we were wanting to do something quite different as well I think you know we're ready for a change for something new and so we just kind of went off in our different directions and um yeah, so that's kind of why there was no animosity or anything, no great big sort of split. I think it just kind of fell apart quite naturally, really. Yes, well, I think mostly they do in these moments. Oh, well, you know, they don't always, but sometimes people just just had lost the heart or the will, or they just, um, they either make yeah. the phone call, they just don't turn up to the, to the next rehearsal. Did that, yeah. did you have a sort of an official, that's it, Jim Morrison, this is the end moment with the band? Oh, wow. Do you know, I can't remember. Isn't that strange? I can't remember. Um, Oh, just bear with me one second. Um, My son's coming. Hello. Pardon? I'm just doing my interview. I'm just chatting. (laughs) Oh, okay. Maybe I'll go upstairs. That's probably the best thing to do. Just bear with me. Oh, yes. yes, My my son's coming. (laughs) No, no, just... Yeah. Hi, it's going. I'm good, yeah, yeah, just going. Oh, I'll hit resume. I'm, I'm... Okay, yes. So, yeah, so, so then, yeah, so that's the end. When the band finishes, do you have to do anything like, you know, like, uh, oh, that's... I don't, is there any admin? What happens when a band finishes? <laughs> when a band finishes? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, um... <sighs> I don't think we were with our record label anymore. I, I, phonogram, I, think, I don't think we were with them anymore. Yes. Um, so there was nothing to sort of be done then. Obviously, the publishing, um, well, the thing is that all of the rights have been signed away, you know, for the songs to the publishing company. And then, you know, this, the tracks that we'd recorded, you know, they're owned and still are owned. Uh, you know, it was phonogram at the time that we signed to. Um, 
But we didn't, I mean, Rob carried on working with the manager that we had, myself and Rick just sort of set ourselves free. And I think it felt good to be free. I think we wanted to do something really new and really different. Yes. Um, we, didn't, we didn't have to, you know, the, we, we weren't contracted to each other at all in any way. So um, it was just a, a natural progression, really. Rob went on to do other things and so did myself and Rick and we're sort of newly inspired you know we like to move on we had different ideas about different things that we wanted to do oh god yeah I mean it's you know it's all good stuff so then sort of by the mid 80s things had changed again all sort of by 87 because obviously every scene starts to alter a bit and and a lot of those indie bands I loved sort of started splitting up you know most bands have a five-year narrative don't they and then it all just it's an interesting five-year narrative they get together you know 12 months you know messing around doing their thing get a single John Peel <laughs> get the John Peel session things are going well the first album things are going brilliant and then it's a bit tricky the second album and then the third and then it's all just put yeah five years so you know it's fair enough but by 87 there's a kind of a different a bit of a musical kind of shift again the ecstasy world comes in and then there's this kind of new push towards things like you know um, I don't know summer of love the summer of love oh we can remember it no I can't but um, if I'm (laughs) at the right place but there was like you know you had the you know that's not stone roses at that point but you'd had the sort of happy mondays and then you had primal screen Mm. soup dragons then stone roses and the orb started soup dragons funny you mentioned soup dragons hi-fi sean the singer of the Soup Dragons is is one of my closest friends now. Yes, um, good old Sean yeah. from the Soup Dragons, all the way from Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah we 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 spend quite a lot of time together, and sometimes we do a bit of work together as well. Yeah, he's lovely, Sean. He's amazing, you know, and such a you know like amazing how he's the indie kid, the absolute indie kid of the eighties, you know, mid eighties, and then he's this DJ, which is kind of doing all these amazing. <laughs> remixes and stuff like that so, so what happened how did you then sit down one day and think I'm going to be in another band with Rick uh, Rick and I were an item oh you froze on that item damn don't freeze I think your internet might have gone oh no don't tell me you're going to lose connection do 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 wait a minute I'll hit pause wait I'm still Right. So, yeah, you said it just froze when you said you and Rick were an item. Yes, we were. Uh, we were, you know, we lived together and we made music together. Just we, we really got into just this whole new vibe. We just kind of got into, um, you know, we just just we want we just did wanted to do something. We, I was going to I wanted to do more singing so I, I sang and we were very influenced time by also you know nature there were, there were different influences that we'd had from when we were in Swan's Way and yes. um, we were kind of we got quite cosmic I think with Scarlet Fantastic and oh, kind fantastic. of fantastic so did you get into kind of earth energy and earth magic and yeah absolutely all of, all of that were you getting into yeah all of that all of that and the funny thing is kind of yeah we got into all of that and in fact we were kind of really new age I think kind of before new age became acceptable oh and gosh. sort of this is popular and this is did, did you do uh, did you do sweat lodges and and sort of worship the full moon or at least kind of acknowledge it and no we didn't do sweat lodges <laughs> 
but uh, we just just got into Earth energy, and I just you know kind of had this idea that there was this sort of pool of consciousness that you could tap into, and that kind of inspired my song uh, "Plug Me Into the Central Love Line." Yes, um, it's just all this kind of stuff. Which nowadays, you know, people write books and sell millions of books about these subjects, but actually, I kind of intuitively. Um, was into all of that kind of stuff back then we did a big thing with nature we used to go into forests and the energy just felt really good especially in Shropshire we were into earth energy and stuff and um you know writing songs like follow that star and I just yeah. felt really connected just felt really connected and um did you go to stone you know, circles we... did you did you sort of find yourself in Avebury yeah or... we did actually we did we've been in <laughs> many stone circles this is great. We well actually find... going back to that film the the Nightingales film uh, Stuart Lee takes Robert Lloyd to a, a stone circle near his place to sort of you know talk about That's such things as stone circles which is great you know so um you'll love this, that film yeah, there was the great Rollwright Stones because we always used to drive between, and it was probably before the M40 was built, driving between Birmingham and London a lot because we recorded a lot in London. Um, we'd stop off at all of those stone circles on the way um, and go and hang out. Yeah, we were well into all of that, um, very much so. And, you know, moon energy, energy of the sun. Just We used to go to this place called Witchbury Hill outside Birmingham um, that was a sort of a big centre of ley lines and everything. Yes. um, Well, that was interesting. God, ley lines. We used to go on about (laughs) ley lines so much because there's this ley line, (laughs) St Michael's ley line that runs from sort of down in Cornwall, I guess, and it comes through sort of Glastonbury and Stonehenge and Avery and goes through... I don't know, it probably goes through I, which is a place in Suffolk, and then it comes out oh, at wow. great oh, low stuff, just above low stuff. And it's kind of, you know, people used to go on about <laughs> going to the ley line and sort of, I don't know, trying to douse it and going to Glastonbury Tour and then, you know, yeah. The yeah, I went well. there recently, actually. I went to Glastonbury Tour recently. That was great. Loved it. I can't believe I've not been before. But no, I kind of, yeah, but what we see, that was interesting with them. Um, yeah, I mean yeah just all of that stuff felt very very connected but we we put a kind of glam sort of glamour hippie kind of kind of um rocky kind of vibe on it like rick he was captain pleasure and i was love lady it, we did a bit of a sort of cartoony thing as well it's kind of like the real the surreal and the fantastic and it was all kind of Bit this far out, really. <laughs> you definitely did enter the summer of love, there, didn't you? So with with yeah, uh, and it was interesting because the song "No Memory" became, um, even though it was released in '87, it got picked up by Andy Weatherall and um, became quite big in '92, even more so than it had in '87, yes. because it became like a bit of a balearic thing, and you know, people loved the idea of the sun in the hair, the moon in their eyes, and not giving a damn because they're free. Because we've got the yeah, because they've been the orb and then beloved as well with that track called the sun rising and sweet harmony. I just remember there was suddenly oh, yeah. in the 90s there was this kind yeah. of everyone was I don't know it was all a bit well it's a lot of drugs really wasn't there but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah, so you get together not to the band and and then you get signed to Arista. So how did you manage to sort of find yourself getting onto such a major label? I get, do you know what? Again, 
we'd done a radio you one had a good session. Neighbor. <laughs> you didn't have a neighbor, Radio one session. No, it wasn't a good neighbor this time. We'd actually been touting our cassettes at the time. We'd been myself and Rick had been going around the record companies in our loud animal print coats. I think I was in a giraffe coat with very high heels, and I'm six foot two in bare feet, but with hair heel, high heels and about six nine. So I think we made a bit of an impression. Um, so we're going around the record companies. He was wearing his uh, left, uh, zebra skin coat and his cowboy hat. And uh, we were playing cassettes to people and no memory was on the cassette. And um, we met Jack Stephen, who at the time worked for CBS. And he, he really liked us. And then he didn't work for CBS quite soon after that. But he said, can I manage you? And we said, yeah, sure. And he'd, he'd worked in a lot of companies before that, RCA and different things. And, um, but anyway, but we then, we'd, we'd got a Radio 1 session. And because of that Radio 1 session, um, I think it might have been with Janice Long, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, we then did the Tube again. We went up to Newcastle and I'd kind of had this idea about how I wanted to do a film to no memory, sort of like in mirrors and stuff and filming outside and then projecting images. It was, it was quite kind of psychedelic in a way, a bit surreal. And um, so we went up and, we, yeah, we did this film for the Tube and the record company saw it on TV, so we had quite a lot of interest. And then actually, bizarrely, it was, um, yeah, so we did end up signing to Arista, Arista at the time. And um, also Jack, our manager, introduced us to Pete Waterman at the Borough Studios. And um, he played Pete the demo of No Memory. And Pete said, well, I like this. He said, let them come in, they can come in. And we said, we want to produce ourselves. So we used the studio and we produced ourselves and, and we worked with a guy called Dave Washburn, who's one of the engineers there. And um, we produced No Memory. Um, and actually, yeah, I backtrack a bit. So that was, we did that. And it was when Arista heard that, actually, that we got signed. We hadn't signed to Arista at that point, but we had done the tube and we done a radio one session and we'd had a lot of interest so, yeah but it was when we sort of played uh, when we recorded no memory that uh yeah Amazing. they sort of jumped up and down and get and, and signed us so and then and then the deal was we got to use pwl pete studio on the night shift we'd go in at midnight every night and we'd work with um different engineers uh Dave washbourne and a girl called karen hewitt from australia and those two, myself and Rick, would be there doing the all-night sessions, recording. And that's why we called the album 24 Hours, because we oh, were wow. recording. My God, that's amazing, isn't it? Because it, it comes together really smoothly. You must have felt like at that stage, the, the planets had lined, lined up for you. Uh, oh, you've just gone. Yeah, I look back at that period of my life, those 10 years, um, yeah, and I think the planets were aligned, actually. But I think always the planets have been aligned. And I think whatever I've done and whatever I'm doing now is kind of what I'm meant to be doing. Yes. You know. Um, well, how did you, and then sort of as that sort of period, sort of, it's kind of, I don't know, there's so much that goes on in each little decade, especially this kind of period, which I probably 
I was a bit more obsessed with because then, you know, around sort of the, the late 80s and early 90s, we had the sort of grunge scene, but at the same time, there was the kind of the real sort of the, the, the rave, the rave world, especially with people like the Orb had started, hadn't they? And then sort of, yes, DJs coming out and, you know, travel, the traveling community and sort of lots of free yeah. festivals and stuff like that. Did you sort of fit into any, again, did you fit into any of those scenes, you know, had you become a sort of a soundtrack? Because there was people like Adam- Adamski who'd started as well. Oh, Adamski. He's another friend of mine now, Adam. Adam, <laughs> yes. Funnily, yeah, funnily enough, Adam might be doing a, a remix. Oh. You froze. Don't freeze. Don't freeze. Freeze. Don't freeze. Don't freeze. You froze. Oh, you froze after Adam. Oh, I think you've just come back, actually. Come back. Don't lose it. Last minute. Right, okay. Yeah, so you said Adam Adam might be doing a remix for the new single. Yeah, he might do, of no memory. Um yeah, uh, maybe at some point it's been talked about. Um, but what, yeah, no, you were saying, um, <coughs> was I involved with people around that time? No, I actually fled the country. I didn't flee it at all. I, I met somebody that I fell in love with in South Africa and he lived in Dublin and then I moved to Dublin um, for a few years. And then I met my husband, Leif, an American cowboy, and we moved back to London and... Um, it was that that was in the early 90s in fact and that's when kind of no memory had become kind of like a bit of a cult classic on the the lyric scene and on you know in a lot of the clubs around the country liverpool and stuff an old school ha- a club called daisy that i've actually went back a few years ago and did a pa there and they all there were like probably about a thousand people and they're all singing along to their memory. This is in 2007. It was great. Oh, <laughs> I loved it. So in that, so you did, you did all that sort of in 87, 88 with the band and no memory and, and the sort of the, the album comes out as well, doesn't it? Which is yeah. 24 hours. So do you then yeah. sort of for the next couple of years, do you sort of, is it the case that, you know, the band is slightly not sort of happening so much because you said you sort of, went to was it South Africa and then no Dublin and then you oh okay well no no we, we did we toured and everything we did all that stuff you know we did all the tv shows from top of the pops we did MTV I mean we had a great time we had fun um but you know things are kind of falling apart with the band and also with myself and Rick personally and then um I don't think we'd spent a day apart for many years and I went to South Africa and I met someone <laughs> fell in love with them who's an Irish guy and I ended up moving to Dublin, as you do, and yes. um, uh, lived there for a little while and, and recorded some stuff over there, hung out with some Irish musicians. That was a really good, fun scene to be in at the time. You, you know, you got like you two and everyone all hanging out. And it, 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 again, Dublin was a small, it was when that film The Commitments was made. Oh, and, and God, there yes, of course. Bands like, um, was it The Hot House Flowers? And then there was that. The last, you know, there she goes. Yes, that's she one. That one. Uh, there was, yes. And, a lot um, going on. And I quite like the Irish scene, actually. That was good. And then I came back to London because I met Leif over in Dublin, my, my American husband, who I have worked with a lot, actually. We've done a lot of music together. Um, 
and we we kind of came back we moved to london and it, that was all and then in the early 90s um you know that i realized that kind of things were going really really well with no memory and it become a bit of a cult classic on the Balearic scene and in a lot of the clubs around the country and everything yes. so because when you did the, the the single, which is um, titled "Film Star Kiss," this has got a. This has been. This, was this mixed by Stephen Duffy, the, the famous Stephen Duffy? Um, hang on, not 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 like Stephen Tintin Duffy. No, no. Who would it be mixed by? I uh, know it was all. It was people at uh, PWL actually that mixed um, that. I'm trying to think who would mix. There was kind of. Um, Oh what? Don't I Washburn. <laughs> no, no, God, it's oh, I think Karen uh, Hewitt was there. And um Karen Hewitt and Dave Washburn. Yeah, Karen Hewitt did a lot of the mixes actually. Um but the, it was the, the people at um PWL were, were mixing the Scarlet Fantastic Tracks. There were some really good mixers there and engineers, so brilliant. Yes, well they they certainly were on a roll. So then ninety one, the band finishes again. Well your your second band, well no. The next band, anyway. Yeah. So then, did you again? Did that sort of? Did you know it was coming? Did you sort of realise actually this is it? We're gonna... Yeah, you know, um, we weren't with a label anymore. The, the 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 managing director at the time who had signed us, who was really up for us, he he was removed from the company. He lost his job. Um, there was a whole shift of people that worked there. You know, the, the employees all changed, and we hadn't really got any sort of real allies there. And so we didn't stay with the company. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we just, it was time to move on, you know. I, I don't stick around for too long with things that aren't really working out. It's yes. best to kind of move on. It's get refreshed. To move on. So then, so what happens oh. then? Because there's kind of quite a gap then between that and then you sort of resurrect the band in 2004 16 and then you've got some singles that have come out recently oh my goodness what have i i've, I've never stopped making music I've, I've there's so much stuff i mean if you were to go um online and look at all of the things that i've done myself and leaf um we were called kale and kale swap kahal and kahal and we actually um signed a publishing deal with pete waterman back in 92 um, and we're with him till 95. Um, and then we're doing all our own stuff and recording our own songs, working there. Um, and then, gosh, recorded lots more stuff towards the end of the 90s. And then the beginning of 2000, end of the 90s, we ran a club in Nottingham Hill called El Dorado, where we did live music and stuff. And then um, we did a, an album called Club Silencio that, uh, that we collaborated with Graham Crabb from Pop Release Itself. So uh, we did that in 2000 and working on that in 2001. I had a kid, I had a baby, now 21 years old. Yes. <laughs> um, we, um, gosh, what else did we do? Uh, yeah, after, after um, doing the album with Graham, actually, I, I collaborated with Martin Watkins who works with Mark Almond he's the keyboard player in Mark Almond's band and we did an album called Union um, that came out I think 2013 uh, but before that gosh I did lots of different collaborations with people I've, I've made dance records and and then I decided to resurrect the name Scarlet Fantastic um, in 2016 with an album called Reverie 
which is a sort of alternative folk album. But wow. I like to keep the name Scarlet Fantastic because it's kind of the themes that I was visiting and the subject matter of reverie is very much kind of in line with what I always was singing about with Scarlet Fantastic. And was this your, just yourself? It wasn't with Rick this time. This is just you being Scarlet Just Fantastic. me, actually. Um, the Scarlet Fantastic album was um, recorded and engineered by Leif, my husband, um, who has now departed. He's um, left the planet. He, he died in 2017. Um, we've, we've always done lots of work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and since he's gone... I've carried on. I'm working with lots of different people. I've done a few things with Hi-Fi Sean. Um, I'm working with a lot of local musicians. Um, uh, yeah, so... Yes, um, Jesus, that's always hard. Never really it? stop, never stop. Oh, and I've had quite a lot of stuff. I write stuff that gets used, um, you know, in like on movies and adverts. I did a song that was quite big for robinson's juice commercial <laughs> so yeah and that's great if your music can get used um well absolutely but I've got a lot of new songs coming out soon I've, i released two i think last year as singles but of course the whole covid thing and lockdown affected you know being able to go in the studio and work i have a studio at home and there's some brilliant musicians locally i've really fantastic keyboard player and um, double bass player, violin player. I've had all sorts coming yeah. in. And, uh, so with, the, co-written with, the, with those two co-written singles that came out, oh, this sorry. Better Day and Make Way for Love. So was this kind of yes. is this going to be part of the next kind of album project that you're you're working towards, or were they just kind of <laughs> on the standing on their own? Make Way for Love was kind of um, a dance, a dance track, sort of pop dance. Um, Better Day, I think, probably will be on the next album that I do. Uh, Better Day, it's sort of the, the new songs that I'm doing are kind of um, in that, that kind of genre. Um, I, a couple of them I co-wrote with John Walters, again, who used to be in Landscape, oh, the one that I worked with back in the 80s. Oh, God, that's so, amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I, mean, I went to New York, actually, and... Um, in 2014, that was one of the other things I did, work with Mike Thorne again. And one of the songs on the album, Reverie, is a song called uh, Beyond Pluto, and we wrote that together. So, yeah, I've never stopped really. I mean, I've worked with Japanese DJs. Um, I, I do a lot of stuff. I collaborated with a Swedish guy, a Norwegian guy. Just, um, I, you know, I'm always up for a good old collaboration if anyone wants to... Uh, Hit collaborate it. with me <laughs> yes well absolutely my god that's fantastic I'm so pleased that you sort of yes because some people you know that I've interviewed you know that that music period where they they were you know for that five years of intensity is often it and then you know 30 years later they start to find the love again but it's great that you'd never stopped sort of mm-hmm. making music I, I never you know I've lived a life in between I've traveled a lot I'm, I'm a traveler I love traveling and I, I intend to do a whole lot more I've I've been to a lot of places and, um, you know, got a son, had a dog, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, lived a life. <laughs> but I've always done music as well. So um, I'd say music and travelling are kind of my passions. And people, I love people. Yes, uh, that's fantastic. Hanging out, all kinds of different people. I find, 
you know, mu music, art, people, just conversation. It's, it's all very interesting. It kind of sort of rocks me boat, really, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you were to able to say something to your 16 or 18-year-old self starting out in the interest in the world that is the creative arts and music, is there anything that you would have just kind of whispered in their ear that you'd have thought, yeah, that would have been handy to know, or yes, that's a good thing to do, keep doing it? I would always just say to people, just to follow your passion. Just be passionate. Just yes. do whatever you need to do. Don't 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 go for like the safe thing of you know thinking that you just want to get a job and make some money and just get through. Just follow your passion before it comes too late. You know, before you you just got to believe in what you think you want to do and just follow your dreams and follow your passion. I mean, I always say that to people. Always. Sometimes I get asked to go in and talk to. Um, some of the music production students at Brighton Uni are going to do a bit of a guest le lecture and um, basically I just G them all up I just say you know don't give up with what you're doing and in fact funnily enough the guy I use now who's an engineer who comes into my house is one of the students I met about five years ago <laughs> and he got in touch with me and he was asking me for contacts for production music because I did quite a bit of production music and I said oh how's your engineering and um he said he was uh, a good engineer and he enjoyed engineering. I said, well, you can come over and do some engineering for me then. He's absolutely brilliant. He's really, really good. So, yeah, I mean, I just, just follow your passion, whatever it is, you know, because yeah. life's too short to not, you know, live, live in the day, be in the moment and follow your dreams. What, what else can you do? I know, keep rocking, Jesus Christ. I know, that's, um, yes, I know. It's kind of strange, though, as you get older, dealing with those oh, kind of God. setbacks and ups and downs. I find that quite it's hard. It's different. Being, you asked me what I would say to a 16 or 17-year-old. I might say something completely different to a 55-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> David, listen, I'm going to have to go because yes. my son's just got in and um, I've got a feeling there might be a curry arriving any yeah. minute. So, And I think on that cliffhanger, we're going to say, that is it. To quote Jim Morrison, the end. Anyway, that was a massive thank you to Maggie K. DeMond from Scarlet Fantastic and various other musical combos. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and good old Podbean. Indeed. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>